Good afternoon. Welcome to the Exploring Economic Freedom lecture series. Our speaker today is Benjamin Powell. He's a professor in the Department of Economics at Suffolk University and a senior economist at Beacon Hill Institute. Dr. Powell is the editor of Making Poor Nation Rich, Entrepreneurship and the Process of Development that was published in 2008. He's also the co-editor of Housing in America, Building Out of a Crisis, that was published in 2008. He has published over 30 publications, whether in academic journals or policy journals. He's also appeared uh, on various TV shows on CNN, MSNBC, Showtime, National Public Radio, and more importantly, on Penn and Teller, famous TV show called Bullshit. <laughs> Please welcome Benjamin Powell, who will talk to us about sweatshop wages and third world workers. Thank you, Alex, and uh, it's a pleasure to be back here at, at Metro State. I had the uh, privilege of lecturing here a few, year, uh, few years ago for you guys and uh, participating in a debate with your former governor, uh, Dick Lamb, uh, on immigration and had quite a blast that time, and I'm happy to be back here again to talk to you this time about sweatshops and, of course, also to visit your lovely ski mountains outside of town and drink your microbrews over at Falling Rock, uh, probably equally important. Um, so today, as I go through the talk, I'm going to go over a lot about wages and working conditions and sweatshops, and I'm going to have some graphs and figures to show you. But before I get to that, I do want to start by just put, showing you some pictures to put a human face on it. This here is a view inside uh, a sweatshop. It comes out a little bit blurry when it's blown up to the screen in here, but you can make it out. Of people sitting around, the sewing machines are rather close together. Uh, the workers have their shirts off, so I deduce that it's probably hot in there. Uh, there is a fan, if you notice, up in the back. But if you also notice, you can see the blades of the fan, which means it's not moving. Uh, so whether it's working or not, I'm not sure. Uh, obviously, a place where not many of us would choose to work, uh, likely for little money and very poor working conditions. However, what we have to keep in mind in these situations is what are the other available alternatives to those workers, not how does it compare with the available alternatives to us in the United States. And often, those alternatives are much, much worse. Subsistence agriculture, working in the fields. Uh, this, if you've been to poorer countries, you often see people going into the forest, chopping down trees that are largely unowned communal property, then bringing them to the market to sell as fuel or to use themselves. Uh, or even worse, destitute, begging, starvation. These are all much worse alternatives than working in that sweatshop. So what we have to be careful with is when we look at policies to try to help sweatshop workers, that we don't do something to endanger their jobs that would throw them into one of these even worse alternatives. So I'd like to start by defining what type of sweatshops I'm talking about. Because uh, it's kind of a squishy term. People throw it around all the time. Um, the type that I'm going to be talking about are low-wage places in the third world where workers choose to work that have very poor health and safety conditions. The one type that I will not be talking about is situations where workers don't choose to work there. So coerced labor when they literally force someone to work in the sweatshop with the threat of violence, either from their government or from the employer. That's slave labor. It's not part of what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, admittedly, from a bad set of other choices often, but where the worker themselves still makes the choice to be there. 
Uh, and that choice is important, and that's largely the reason why most economists take a gains from trade perspective when they talk about sweatshops, uh, meaning employers obviously employ the workers because they make a profit from doing so, but workers choose to work there because the worker perceives that's their best available opportunity. Uh, and this is economists, you know, from the right like Walter Williams to the far left like Paul Krugman uh, have published on the sweatshops, taking a gains from trade perspective. Uh, so with these awful alternatives, this is one instance in Cambodia here, where hundreds of people scavenge it for plastic bags, metal cans, and bits of food, and trash dumps. And then they talk about one worker or one person who was scavenging there and said they were averaging 75 cents a day for her efforts. For her, the idea of working, of being exploited in a garment factory, working only six days a week inside instead of seven days a week outside in the broiling sun for up to $2 a day is a dream. Now, of course, we want to do things that will try to make this dream better, but we want to make darn sure that we're not throwing her out of $2 a day and back to 75 cents a day working. And you know, the first time I read this, the economist me just went right to that $2 versus 75 cent comparison. But there's something else as I've done more work on sweatshops that has stuck out to me more and more. And that's in the middle of the quote, the broiling sun. There's a status about moving from out in the fields in agriculture to moving indoors and working inside. Uh, the first time that this was really impressed upon me is when I was down in Guatemala one time. I've been down a few times. And I uh, often try to combine hiking with my trips when I go different places. And I was out hiking some volcanoes outside, uh, about an hour outside of Antigua, maybe an hour and a half from Antigua. And as I was coming off the volcano that time, I had a guide with me. Uh, mostly, I didn't really need one for the hike, but the price of labor was really cheap and it included transportation and food and tents, so I didn't have to pack all of that stuff. Uh, so he was with me and we're coming down and there's a man out in the fields working. And he was essentially doing the work of what a, a farm animal would do, an ox. He had a cross piece on his shoulder, and he had two large logs that were propped up on it and were being dragged behind him that he was pulling down the mountain to bring to the bottom to have it chopped up for fuel. And uh, so I asked the, the guide, uh, how much does he make for doing that? And uh, he quoted me in quetzales. I think it was around 50 quetzales or something like that. Basically, when you translate it back, it roughly worked out to about a beer, a beer and a half. Uh, that's how I do foreign currency conversions, by the way. Whenever I'm in a foreign country, I do the exchange rate, figure out what a beer costs, and then evaluate everything else in terms of, oh, that's five beers, that's ten beers, that's how I do my relative prices. Uh, which also leads to me not bringing home very many souvenirs because I'm always thinking of the beers I could have had. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's about a beer and a half a day that they earned doing this. And so then I asked him, I said, well, what does somebody work, earn working in the garment factory? He says, oh, well, it varies. I said, well, you know, not in the capital, somewhere out uh, you know, outside of the capital, entry-level worker, basic bottom-type earner. Oh, well, he didn't really want to give me an answer. Eventually, he gave me an answer that was about two to three times what the guy in the fields was earning. But before I could follow up with anything, he said, as soon as he quoted me the wage, he said, but that's inside, not outside. Like, there was a difference to this, both in terms of quality of life and how other people would perceive them down there. And this is coming from a guy who works as a hiking guide, so he's obviously not adverse to the outdoors. Um, and this was a picture I took as I was coming off. I didn't take one of that man. But this, it's kind of hard to tell from here, but they're actually young children who are hauling the wood that was later chopped up. This next picture is a little bit better. Uh, it was a different trip, actually, uh, when I was down, but same, same region generally. And this was a Friday, uh, Thursday, I think, that I was out hiking on this one. Uh, coming down, and two children, it's a little hard to tell, but I'm going to guess 8 to 11 years old or so out there working. And oftentimes when people are talking about sweatshops, they'll say, well, just it's the kids. We just got to get the kids out of there. Well. 
it's often not the case that getting the kids out of there results in the kids then going to some middle-class education like you'd have in the United States. The children are working not because their parents are mean, but because their families are desperately poor and need whatever meager earnings that they can get. As you look at countries have economic growth, as you get to middle-income countries, child labor virtually disappears by itself. But until then, they need those wages or what they can earn. So when we do things like boycott a factory that was using child labor, it might result in those children not having that job anymore, but it doesn't result in them just going to school quite often. These kids here are out working on the farm during a day that would be a school day, probably earning much less than what they could if they were in a factory, and probably not building as many skills as what they'd build if they were working in a factory for the future. They're essentially training to grow up and be like the man I saw who was essentially functioning as an ox. So we have to make sure that we don't throw them into these worse situations. Sometimes it's much worse. So Bangladesh, a factory was uh, pressured into firing its child employees uh, by protest in the United States. Uh, Oxfam, the British charity, reported on this, that afterwards, quote, thousands of the children became prostitutes or starved. Clearly, prostitution and starvation are worse alternatives. So with these in mind, we need to think about what determines the level of compensation and the mix of compensation of workers to make sure any policies advocated don't risk throwing them into these worse alternatives. So first, level of compensation. So the maximum an employer is willing to pay an employee, pretty simple, how much do they contribute to my revenue? So in economics speak, marginal revenue product, in normal people speak, how much value per hour can that employee provide me? That's the maximum I'd be willing to pay. Now, of course, employers aren't charities. They don't want to pay that much. Ideally, they'd like if you create $4 an hour, they'd like to pay you $0 an hour and get $4 an hour worth of profits from you. So that's just the upper bound. The lower bound, what's the lowest that they can offer you and you'd still take the job? So in econ speak again, it's what's the worker's opportunity cost? So they have to make an offer that's more attractive to that employee than what they could get elsewhere. Between those two bounds is where wages can fall. In practice, this upper and lower bound tend to be very close together because the amount of revenue that you can create at one place is often closely related to the amount of revenue you could create for somebody else, which is telling you what your bargaining range is going to be here, especially when we're talking low-skilled workers. Uh, these bounds tend to be fairly tight together. Uh, looking at cross-country uh, cross study on this, they figure it's about 75% of employee wages can be the variation of employee wages can be explained by differences in worker productivity. So that's the upper bound stuff. So maybe 25% comes from variation and lower bound. This means if we advocate policies, we have to make sure that they don't risk raising the employee compensation above that upper bound. In fact, fundamentally, what we need to do is advocate policies that do something to raise that upper bound and also raise that lower bound as well. Any reforms that we try to do that don't fundamentally address that risk raising employee wages above their productivity. If you raise their wages above the productivity, any profit maximizing employer is not going to hire them anymore or they will fire them if they are any employed. So that's the constraint that you have to operate it. Now, a lot of people respect that constraint, but they'll say it's not the wages, it's the working conditions. So I was actually debating a woman from the National Labor Committee about a year ago uh, at a university, and in our, her opening statement, she said, I'm not going to debate about wages. I admit that wages in sweatshops are going to be better than most other places. Instead, I want to talk about working conditions, which I was shocked, actually, that she did that, and so was the student group that sponsored her to bring, the, bring her in there to debate me. Um, but she wanted to separate and say, I just want to talk about health and safety conditions. Well, the two are intimately related. So employers don't care how they pay you. They care about your total level of compensation. Whether they give it to you in dollars or give it to you in other benefits, it's still just money out of their pocket. 
That's what they care about is that total amount that they have to pay you, not how it's divided up between monetary wages, extra health, extra safety at the factory, bathroom breaks, lunch breaks, more predictable working hours, all of these other things that they could give an employee that an employee would value, but would cost the employer in terms of the profits that they can make. Employer doesn't care how he splits it up. Either way, cost is a cost. He cares about the total size of the package. Who does care about the mix? The employee cares about the mix. Most of you who have part-time jobs probably wouldn't be too happy if someone cut your wages in half, but then all of a sudden gave you a lot more perks on the job. Employees do care about it. And that means an employer has every incentive to try to tailor the compensation, the mix, towards employee preferences. If they don't, they're leaving money on the table, basically to get any given level of worker satisfaction. If you do it with a package that's not their optimal mix, the whole size of the package costs you more then than what you would do if you remixed it to give them the desired uh, trade-offs between the two for the employees. So when we see the mix of compensation, that's largely driven by employee preferences. Obviously not each individual employee, but your employees on average. Um, now, we find these health and safety conditions, they're appalling compared to our standards. The reason they're so bad is because worker productivity, that upper bound total compensation, is so low. When total compensation is very small, workers tend to choose almost all of their compensation in terms of wages rather than health and safety. This makes sense if, you know, health, leisure, child leisure, safety are all normal goods, meaning as your income goes up, you'll purchase more of them. Well, when you're desperately poor, you're going to purchase less of them. They take most of their wages, or most of their compensation, in the form of wages because they're trying to desperately to feed, clothe, and shelter their families. Uh, so advocating policies that change the mix of compensation, really what an activist is doing is saying, my preference is best. I know what's best for you better than what you, the workers, do. They always pitch it as saying, it's the evil employer who's not giving you health and safety. I'm going to make him give you health and safety. But really, it's the mix that's being chosen by the employees. And now someone in the West saying, I actually have a better idea than what you, the worker who's in that condition, knows for yourself. Um, so if you advocate policies that change the mix, one of two things is going to happen. Either that bundle is going to change away from what the employee preferred, or you're going to end up inflating the overall total cost of compensation higher, and as a result, maybe go above their upper bound. And if that's the case, unemployed workers throwing them into these worse alternatives. Now, some people will say these companies make exorbitant profits. Can't we just make them give up some of their profits to do this? This ignores basic economic thinking of thinking on the margin. The companies may make a profit from doing this, but they're not charities. They're profit maximizers. If you do something to change the type of compensation they have to give their employees, their profit maximizing quantity to employ will change. That means they might not shut down the whole factory. Sometimes they might. Sometimes they might shut it down in one place, move it to a different country. But other times, they'll just lay off some workers on the margin. So even if they're making profits, you can't just say, take some money out of their profits and give it to the employees without having the company respond and make a change into how many employees they're willing to hire. You change their marginal opportunity cost of hiring workers, they'll hire fewer of them. Um, so just simply having profits there isn't enough in order to be able to dip into it. Now, the anti-sweatshop movement's a curious mix of people. Uh, I don't know, actually, if Metro State has uh, students against sweatshop labor on campus. Do we? I imagine some would be in the room. Maybe not. Um, so it's a mix. You have celebrities, you have student activists, politicians, academics, uh, labor unions. Some of the major players here, Unite is a garment workers union, National Labor Committee. Uh, and I put United Students Against Sweatshop just because we're on campus. There's, maybe would be some of you here. 
Um, now, it's no accident that you find labor unions who are advocating policies to help third world workers, or excuse me, advocating policies in the name of helping third world workers. It's because the unions understand the economics behind this. Now, a union, if it's doing its job, what's it supposed to do? It's supposed to raise the wages and compensation of its members. That's what a union's supposed to do. Well, these third world workers aren't members of the U.S. labor union, so why are they running around advocating policies for someone who's not a member? Answer's easy. Third world labor is a substitute for first world labor. Not a one-to-one -one substitute, but it is a substitute. If they do things that raise the level of compensation for third world workers above their marginal productivity, they're going to unemploy third world workers and as a result have greater demand for uh, more skilled U.S. workers. And as a result, be able to push up their employment and wage levels here. Uh, so what they do when they advocate things in the name of helping workers, it's really policies that would make those workers worse off but would help their already, by world standards, wealthy union members here in the United States. Uh, now the things that they call for, international uh, labor standards, so health and safety conditions that must be respected everywhere, minimum or living wages, uh, the right to organize, and I put right in quotations because by that they don't mean the right for some people to get together and bargain as a group. What they mean is the right for some group of people to get together and decide that for other people who aren't part of that group, they're going to get to bargain for everybody. So it's forced association, not just the freedom to associate freely. Uh, but probably the worst thing of all, what's the worst thing that you could advocate for if you want to help sweatshop workers? And it's a common one. What? Closing them or boycotting them, right? Boycott, this one here is the Gap, Old Navy. It also has Save the Redwoods on here, so I don't know. It must have been from UC Santa Cruz or something. Uh, also common, boycott Nike. They use sweatshop labor. Well, what's a boycott do? Instantly, it lowers the demand for the product. Well, let's think about the upper and lower bound now for the workers. That upper bound is limited by how much revenue they can create for the company. If we have a boycott that decreases the demand for a company's goods, the final sales price in the U.S. goes down. As a result, that worker who has stitched sne sneakers before, nothing physical has changed about them. They stitch just as fast as they could before, make just as much same physical product. But now, that physical product is worth less. As a result, with nothing changing about that worker, their upper bound just came down through no fault of their own. Other thing that it does is it might just make it undesirable to employ them at all to close the factory then. So boycotts are probably the worst way you could go about helping the workers. Uh, some economists, I'm ashamed to say, are in on this as well. Uh, there was Scholars Against Sweatshop Labor that circulated a letter. Uh, I put in there where most of the signers were from was kind of the usual suspects, UMass and Notre Dame and New School, kind of the three last bastions of Marxian economics in the country. Um, but they cir circulated a letter uh, in support of anti-sweatshop movement to counter a letter that uh, Jagdish Bhagwati and the International Trade Economist had circulated. The International Trade Economist basically sent a letter around to university presidents saying, stop banning sweatshop products from your university stores, you're hurting the workers. And in it, they said, it's well known that multinational firms usually pay higher wages than domestic firms in the countries that they operate in. Well, the scholars against sweatshop labor, they responded and they said, it may well be true that multinationals generally pay higher wages, but that doesn't speak to the situation of sweatshops. Because where these sweatshops, most of the garments are produced throughout the world, is firms subcontracted by the multinationals, not multinationals themselves. So when you hear about Walmart and sweatshops, 
It's never Walmart itself that's employing them. It's almost always domestic subcontractors, local firms who then sell the products to Walmart or to another firm. Uh, so the, uh, the economists who circulated this were, were right about that. No one had done the work. So actually, that's what got myself and uh, a student of mine at the time who was an undergrad, David Scarbeck, uh, interested in working on this project. So we uh, put together a list of sweatshop-using countries. Now, to do this research, we had to come up with a definition of what is a sweatshop without opening ourselves up to, well, you've just picked the cases that would make uh, your case easiest. So, but there's no real like good hard definition of what a sweatshop is. So what we did was we scoured the U.S. news sources from 1995, 96-ish, uh, up till 2003 or 4 when we started working on the paper, and we used LexisNexis to search through all major U.S. news sources and looked for any cases where protesters said something was a sweatshop. We took them at their word that that in fact was a sweatshop then. Uh, and we put together a list of the countries that they operated in. So first stage was getting apparel industry wage data from these countries. And if you look here, the wages by U.S. standards are very low. So 13 cents is the low in Bangladesh. Uh, the highest in here, I think, was Costa Rica at $2.38 an hour on average. In general, what you see is Asian countries being lower, Latin American countries being a little bit higher. Very low wages by our standards. But that's not the relevant comparison. The relative comparison is, what's it like compared to the other jobs in the countries? So here, we take those average wages and estimate for various hours of work weeks, 40, 50, 60, 70 hour work weeks. In general, one of the characteristics of a sweatshop is very long work hours. In fact, of the sweatshops we found reported in the paper, in only one instance was the hours worked less than 70 hours a week, and it was in the 60s. I really just have the 40 up there for a comparison to a 40 hour work week here in the United States. Um, so we multiply those hourly wages out, and we compare it to average national income in these countries. So the lines don't come through here really well, but you can see where 100% is. If you drew a straight line across, oops, got to be careful here. <laughs> Not very good health and safety conditions for me. Uh, draw a line straight across at 100%. Every time that these lines go up above 100%, people working in the apparel industry in these countries are earning more than the average national income. 200%, they're earning twice the average national income. In some of these cases, we're up to four times average national income. Nicaragua and uh, Honduras, you're up to close to seven times national income. So, like, thinking about that in context of the United States, average national income in the United States is ballpark around $40,000 right now. Seven times that. This would be like protesting a job that was $280,000 in the United States and say that that's a job that's bad for the worker compared to their alternatives. Obviously, the absolute standards are much worse in these places, but the question is, if they didn't have these jobs, where would they be? And the averages in their countries are much, much worse than working in the apparel industry. In fact, it's the workers who don't work in the garment industry, the export industry, that we really have to be worried about. They're at much lower standards of living. So we can also compare it to uh, absolute poverty standards in these countries. So this is from the World Bank on people earning less than a dollar or two a day. Uh, and you see significant fractions of the population in most of these countries are less than $2 a day, and even a good number are less than $1 a day, whereas working in these sweatshops gets you above that standard in most of these places. So in nine out of the 10 countries, working 10-hour days in the apparel industry lift workers above the $2 a day, a day threshold. The one place it's not true is Bangladesh, but there, a third of the population doesn't make it over the $1 a day threshold, and fewer than 20% make it above the $2 a day threshold. So, Next step was go 
next stage, let's look at not the apparel industry generally in countries accused of using sweatshops, but let's look at the actual sweatshops themselves. So these are groups that have been protested uh, by anti-sweatshop groups and unions in the United States. The wage data that we have for them now, we don't have comprehensive, there's no such thing as like a database of sweatshop wages. So we have to construct one. So the way we constructed it is we took the wages that the protesters quoted as sweatshops paying and used that to make our calculations. So the data often comes from the mouth of those people who are protesting sweatshops as bad. Now that means there could be a bias in the data. But if there's that bias, it would be in the direction of understating their earnings if they're trying to say these sweatshops are bad places. If anything, you'd want to find the very newest worker there who earns the very least and try to make them like the average case in the place. Or you might even be you know, tweaking the numbers to your advantage. Either way, though, what I'm trying to say is that these jobs are better than average. So the extent that there's a bias in the data, it's going to cut against what I'm trying to say and make it what I have to say harder. Of course, there's another problem that means conversion rates were done all different ways. There's simply no way to control for that. It's the best we can do. Um, so this here is the face of some sweatshop employers that we found when we were reading these different cases. So we've got the, uh, the Olsen twins back when they were cute, uh, Walmart. And I thought that this was um, P. Diddy, but last time I gave this talk, someone said it wasn't. Uh, it's okay, so 50 cents apparently pays his workers more than 50 cents. Uh, it was supposed to be P. Diddy. So here is the, the list that we put together. We give you the country, the year, when it was associated with a company in the United States, we report that. And then the, the hours that they put in here, 18 cents, 8 cents an hour. Sometimes it's per hour, sometimes it's per day, sometimes it's per week, depending on the individual case that we had. Had a number of episodes in China, uh, few in Bangladesh. So, oh, there's P. Diddy. He's up near the top there. Uh, Haiti, Honduras. Honduras with Kathy Lee. Uh, that's the famous episode uh, in 1996 when she was confronted on television with uh, Wendy Diaz was the worker's name, who was earning 31 cents an hour in Kathy Lee Gifford's sweatshop making a line of clothes for her. And Kathy Lee explodes into tears on television and apologizes. So I've got a book grant out right now to do a new book on sweatshops. And uh, I have a chapter in the proposal called Don't Cry for Me, Kathy Lee. Uh, because if you do the math on it, that 10-hour days in that sweatshop, they're earning $3.10 a day, which is much more than most of the people in that country earn. Uh, and this is someone who is still a young worker, too, so could be earning more in the future. Uh, so we have a number of cases from Honduras, a ton of Indonesia, most of which involve Nike. I'll come back to the Nike point in a second. Uh, Nicaragua, Vietnam. So we're going to do the same exercise that we did for the apparel industry, compare it to average incomes in these countries. Uh, without going into too much detail, basically uh, we just have to wait it since they're all from different years so that we're comparing apples to apples. So if we've got uh, three cases of sweatsho sweatshops in a country, one in 96, one in 97, another in 97, we'll average those three wages together, but then we have to compare it to the average income in the country at that time, which would be average income 96, average income 97, average income 97 divided by three. So that way they were comparing apples to apples. What we find... Basically the same thing that we did with the apparel industry, just not quite as dramatic. So now you've got a 50% line, 100% line's a little higher. In most of these places, with the exception of China and uh, El Salvador, working the long hours in the sweatshop brings you up above average national income in the country. And I should caution, by the way, of course, it doesn't have to be better than average national income to be a good job for that worker. Almost by definition, half of your jobs in the country are going to be less than average. The key is, is it the best job for that individual worker, then it's better than their next best alternative. But that said, 
when we're finding jobs that are multiples of national income greater, it's telling you not only is it the best job for that worker, it's probably the best job for a whole lot of people who would like to work there in that country. So uh, China that falls short of the 100% line, I've got one suspicion on that. So I told you at the beginning we're doing non-coercive sweatshops. So in China, a couple of the cases that we found reported, it seemed like coercion was being used on the workers to make them work there. Those cases are not included in our study. But for some other examples in China, uh, it wasn't clear. It was a gray area, so they stayed in the study. So if that's the case, that could be what's biasing those down a little bit. Indonesia, that's lower. All of, not all of, uh, seven out of the nine examples from Indonesia were Nike. But in one of the reports on Nike we read, the workers also, in addition to their regular compensation there, also received free meals at lunchtime. Well, we don't have a way to value free meals at lunchtime, but if we added that into seven out of our nine cases in Indonesia, that would likely pop that line up again. But all the same, general result that we're seeing here, most of them are higher than average national income. A few of them, four of them are higher than double national income, and a few of them are close to three to four times average national income. I should say, by the way, Cambodia, the reason it's just a big black line is because we just had weekly earnings there, so we didn't have to do different hourly estimates. We just had the weeks so multiplied by 52. So compare it to absolute poverty standards. Again, this is the same table as before. Out of the 45 reported sweatshop cases, 43 result dollar per day. Uh, and over half brought the workers, over half, including the Kathy Lee Gifford one, brought the workers up over $2 per day. Um, so while the U.S. likes to write cartoons like this where you have your small-brained employer talking to a sweatshop employee saying, look on the bright side, no one will ever mug you for your paycheck, it's precisely wrong. If you're going to mug someone in one of these countries for their paycheck, it would be someone who works in a sweatshop, not someone who's out in the fields. Um, so this brings us to a question of is there anything activists can do on the margin that, that might help? And I say this one only slightly tongue-in-cheek, air sweatshops. So this, uh, somebody thought they were being cute by having Nike, they'll put your name or your initials in their shoe. They had sweatshop put in there. You're obviously limited with the number of letters you can have. They probably didn't know it was going to make it into my talk. Um, what, why air sweatshop? Well, let's think about it for a second. Michael Jordan earns millions of dollars from Nike for using his name for Air Jordans. Why does he get paid? It's not because Nike's a charity. Why do they pay Michael Jordan? Because people buy his products because you want to be like Mike, right? That creates subjective value in people's minds. So it shifts out the demand curve for Nike's. As a result, Nike can be more profitable. For that service, they pay Michael Jordan. Now, this is the exact opposite of what I talked about when I said a boycott. A boycott, you're saying, I don't want to buy the product specifically because it's made by a worker who's paid low wages. That's shifting that demand curve in for the product and lowering their upper bound. So if you want to do things that could encourage the, employee to, uh, encourage the employer to pay the employees more, one thing would be being willing to pay more for a product specifically because it came from a sweatshop, maybe one that's certified by one of the groups that goes around. Uh, so what is a role for an activist here? It could be certification. So companies who want to say that they pay above normal wages to their workers. Well, you could have student activist groups or activist groups generally who go around and certify that actually whatever the company is saying they actually do and, you know, could give you a seal of approval on it, kind of like good housekeeping seal of approval. It'd basically be a certifier for when companies are employing this, uh, what they call ethical branding strategy. So if air sweatshops and knowing that that worker earns, say, $4 a day instead of $2 a day, creates value in the minds of consumers, then what just happened to that employee's upper bound? Instantly, with no improvement in stitching skills, that upper bound just shifted out. They just created a greater marginal revenue product with the same amount of effort. Now, the key is, of course, that this does create subjective value in people's minds. 
So to some extent, as companies are playing around with ethical branding strategies, you're getting some evidence that in certain cases that it does work. I certainly don't think it's the case for the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people want the better product at the lower price without much regard for who was paid how much in making it. So I think it's a niche, something that can be done on the margin to help a few workers, but not something where you can all of a sudden pass a law or a policy and say, this has to be done universally now. Because what you're going to find is, well, it might create value for a few people. For the vast majority of the people, it will look like just a higher price to them. And as a result, they're going to have a smaller quantity demanded of the product. You throw workers into worse alternatives. So it's a niche, something that might be useful on the margin, but you've got to be fairly modest about it. Uh, and what's cool about it is, it's not just something that makes the company more profitable. It's something that makes the company more profitable, specifically tied to that worker. So that's why you can't just pull money out of their profit it to them, but if you can do something about changing that worker so that that specific worker is what's creating the profits, then they can get a share of it um, without having unemployment effects. Oh, the other caveat, by the way, though, is for those of you who do feel this way and want to buy the products like this, also have to keep quantity purchase constant. So if you're like, yeah, I'll buy the more expensive product that I know the labor gets paid a little bit more, but as a result, I'm going to buy fewer things. So maybe you're someone who does like fair trade coffee or something, and like, oh, well, that coffee costs more, so instead of four cups a day, I'll drink two cups a day. Probably on net, not helping workers. You're going to help some workers who were the ones who produced that. But because you're demanding a smaller quantity, there's going to be fewer overall workers employed in that area, which means some of them are being thrown into those worse alternatives. So even as a uh, branding strategy or whatever, you have to keep quantity purchase constant. If you cut back on quantity, then you're not necessarily helping workers. So process of development view on this. So we want sweatshops to get better. Wishing doesn't make it so. Legislating doesn't make it so. Sweatshops are not new. We had them in the United States. We had them in Great Britain. They disappear as worker productivity increases and incomes increase. So what increases that upper bound? Technology, capital, human capital improvements. All of these things are things that raise the upper bound. But they're not like magic pills. You can't just give it to a place. It's a process that takes time. Now, it is true, though, that that process can go much faster now than it used to. In the United States, and for that matter, Great Britain, Germany, the sweatshop stage of development is a roughly 100, 120-year process. But look at how it's happened more recently. Think of just 1950. If products said made in Hong Kong, made in Taiwan, made in South Korea, people would snicker. It's like, oh, it's the junk, the trinkets. Those were sweatshop countries then. But in a period of a generation and a half, instead of the whole time that it took the United States, they grew much more rapidly and were able to outgrow sweatshops and are now upper income countries. So it is a process that does take time, but it can happen much faster now than it did in the past. In fact, look at what's going on in China and India today. That's even more fantastic growth rates. Um, and the main key of this is because the capital and the technology doesn't have to be created anew. Instead, it can be imported. So when companies come, multinational companies come and invest in your country, they bring with them technology and capital, things that help foster this process of economic growth. So sweatshops themselves are part of this process. Uh, the other things, leisure, comfort, safety, child leisure, these are all likely normal goods. As this process of growth goes, those things will be improved as well. As that overall upper bound keeps increasing, it takes care of most of these other concerns. Um, but unfortunately, policies that risk raising the level of compensation above worker productivity cut the whole process short. If then the sweatshop bails and doesn't come to your country, now you're not importing technology. You're not importing capital. That's slowing down your process of growth and leaving you stagnating and poor for even longer. So to wrap up here and then take some questions, uh, 
bottom line here, apparel industry wages and even the very worst sweatshops uh, in the eyes of the protesters are better than worker alternatives in these countries, sometimes significantly better. And after all, there's a reason the workers chose to work there. They perceived it as their best available alternative. Wages are low and working conditions are poor because productivity is. Uh, best cure for this is process of economic development. And I should say, other reasons that productivity is poor that has nothing to do with the fault of the worker is the governments in these countries have horrible policies. So things that make, uh, uh, that limit labor productivity in these countries or limit the expected revenue product of hiring labor in these countries. So uh, tariffs and barriers to trade, unstable monetary policy, unsecure property rights, poor rule of law, all of these things in the country mean when a factory invests there, they have to take account of the risk of some of these other things going wrong for them when they go to export and make a profit. As a result, what they can expect to get from any physical product of a worker is less. With better policies in these countries, those upper bounds could increase. Um, unfortunately, it's institutional reform, really, that these poor countries need, things that would bring in more sweatshops and would raise the upper bounds. Unfortunately, I don't think there's very much you can do from the outside to create institutional reform in a country uh, that needs stronger property rights, stronger rule of law, and economic freedom. On the margin, there may be a few things you can do, but for the most part, it has to come from the people there themselves. Uh, and that might come with the process of economic development as they get more sweatshops in. So in the short run, these jobs are better than what else is available to them. In the long run, sweatshops cure themselves. It's part of the process of economic development. So until then, I love sweatshops, and so should you. <laughs> with that, I, thank you. With that, I open it up for, for questions from the audience. Okay. Um, you talked a lot about how the sweatshops that you're examining in this are non-coerced sweatshops, mm -hmm. but if the conditions, the economic conditions that these people are living in are that of like such intense poverty, can you really say that they have a choice in terms of choosing to participate in the sweatshops when all the alternatives are like extremely, I mean, when there is no alternative? So th there is an alternative, and that alternative is often subsistence agriculture, begging, scavenging, starving, prostitution. I freely admit those are horrible alternatives, and that's why workers choose to work in these firms. But it's still a choice, and that choice is significant. It signals that this job is better than their other alternatives, which means if we do something that jeopardizes this job, they are going to go to those worse alternatives. So that's the significance of it. Admittedly, it's a bad choice set that they have, but wishing that choice set to weigh doesn't make it so. Said they're stuck with that choice set. We don't want to take away their best option they had. Instead, what we want to do is create more options. So if there's only Nike in town, part of the cure to that is Reebok going in. More competition for them, more opportunities. Okay, this kind of ties in with that, uh, the idea that, uh, well, anyways, I'll just cut to the chase. I have two things, really. Uh, the first, uh, you know, could you say pretty easily, actually, that a lot of these countries you're examining, uh, throughout some period in the last 200 years, they had their national economies uh, literally destroyed by colonialism, whether you're talking about China, Vietnam, Nicaragua, Honduras. Uh, so it's not really this thing where it's, you know, just this kind of, they just happened to be poor. I mean, they literally had national economies before this that were kind of uh, destroyed and structured by uh, uh, multinational corporations and their uh, various international organizations. Uh, and the second part is uh, regarding productivity. I've actually seen figures about productivity uh, in, in third world countries uh, regarding uh, industry. And it, it seems like uh, in a lot of Latin American countries, for instance, uh, productivity is around 50 to 70% of the U.S. 
But that obviously doesn't account for the wage disparity. I mean, we're not talking about a 50% wage disparity. We're talking about a 10 times wage disparity or 30 times to wage disparity, especially if you're talking about the same industry. Yeah, so uh, the productivity figures are simply wrong. If that's the case, you could see the companies would line up and run there in droves right now in a way that they're not. Because that would be profits on the table for them. If the productivity was so much higher, they'd just close up all sorts of things in the U.S. and run. We don't see it. So the productivity figures are just wrong. But, I mean, uh, industry is a very minor section of uh, the American economy today. I mean, there isn't a lot of uh, productive sector in the U.S. Yeah. It's mostly service. No, that's not true. We actually produce more manufactured goods in the United States now than we did in 1970. We do it with smaller employment because we're even more productive. That's what's happened is our productivity. here. But on the first part of your question, though, I do want to address that. Uh, so I completely agree that a lot of these countries have had bad things done to them by the United States or other developed countries in the past. But it's also, it is the case, though, that they would be poor anyway. We're rather conceited in the United States of thinking like that this is the normal condition of the world, that everybody would be rich like this if somebody didn't do something bad to them. Think about the history of humanity. The history of humanity is one of poverty, early death, quick reproduction. It's only been in the last 250 years that a few select places escape that history. They do it when they get their institutions right, where they have the rule of law, protect property rights, grant the citizens large amounts of economic freedom. That lets the genie out of the bag and a country grows. But absent that, the natural state is poor. So these countries, absent somebody doing something bad to them, would still start off poor and have to go through the transition of development. You don't start off rich. The United States didn't, nobody did. Um, my question is in regards to some specific data that was included in your presentation. Sure. Um, one of your charts indicated that people in Haiti are making, that work in the apparel industry are making um, above $2 a day. And then a second chart indicated that in 1996 they were averaging 28 cents an hour on the Disney wages. And in 2007 they were making 55 cents an hour. And I just want to point out a couple of things and um, see if you can speak to this. Uh, first of all, the, the average wage is based on what a worker would make if they reach productivity levels. But um, a, an analysis of the Haitian sweatshops in 2002 found that when the minimum wage was actually raised to meet that 55 cents an hour standard, um, that apparel industries just increased the productivity max the amount that you had to output to make that wage increased by 200%. So there are no workers that are making what would amount to $4.95 a day in Haiti in the apparel industry because they're not making the 200% more garments per hour to make the 55 cents a day. And second of all, when the Haitians increased the minimum wage in 2004, um, Renee Preval specifically excluded the apparel industry from those measures. And so my question is, when you're, account, you're making these calculations about what people are, are making, how do you account for the fact that the apparel industry is going to just protect their bottom line and they just make the uh, output so high that you'll never make that wage? Okay, so there's, there's two questions in here, one about the data, one about the apparel industry responding to these changes. Uh, the data one I'll take first. So on the average earnings there, that's a survey done in globalization and the poor that we get the apparel industry wage data for. For the sweatshop wages, what we got that from is the protesters themselves. So the data is as good as the protester wanted to make it. So that's what I'm limited by, because there, there isn't any data otherwise. Well, the second part, oh, go ahead if you want to follow on that. The international 
labor organization in 2002 did, did put out a report on what wages actually are after they went and uh, to something like 70% of apparel industry. And they found that no one was actually making those wages. Yeah, some of our and stuff comes from ILO. Some of our yeah, sources, well, yeah. The ILO report specifically in 2002 cites that those wages are not being made. Yeah, so uh, that makes it into, like they're one of the groups that we get our sweatshop wage data from. So that's in here. Uh, they're not the only person who says what sweatshops are, though, and certainly don't have a monopoly on it, so they get averaged in with everybody else. Mm -hmm. The second part about how companies respond to these uh, attempts to raise minimum wages. Uh, if the apparel industry is specifically excluded, thank God, otherwise you'd end up jeopardizing these jobs. If you raise the wage above their worker productivity, you're going to throw them out. So it's good that they're excluded. And when they're not excluded, when companies do things like, okay, to earn the minimum then, you have to do something more, that's a lot better than laying off the worker because their productivity at their existing level doesn't justify that wage. So like anything else, you give uh, one intervention, the company's going to respond different ways to it. So it could be that if they mandate greater wages, then you see worse health and safety, longer working hours, no bathroom breaks. That's a natural reaction to it. And one that ends up switching the mix of compensation against worker will, but also against firm will. So this is one of the precise problems with doing policy for this. To be honest, this all, um, I understand what you're saying, but it seems very counterintuitive um, to kind of continue a, a wrong um, and to prevent a worse alternative. Um, and given that influence that a large corporations such as Nike can have on these workers to give them such an above the average income, can't this same company that subcontracts um, help, help improve the policies of the government? Oh. Uh, possibly, but I'm skeptical. So I think ultimately what's going to help these countries is when policies in their governments improve. Uh, I'm not optimistic. First of all, I wouldn't want the companies trying to do it. Companies on the margin sometimes can help. They'll push for enterprise zones, trade zones, things like that. But companies aren't out there to try to make these countries better. They're there to make a profit. So if they can get the laws tweaked uh, in a way that helps them, and sometimes improves institutions, they might, but they're also going to get the laws tweaked in ways that uh, grant extra powers to the firms that they shouldn't have. So I wouldn't want to use them as the lobbying force, or at least it's not clear to me that they'd be a very effective lobbying force for making the lives better. So um, it seems that the root may be in um, the corporations not um, going to, according to their obligations to the countries and their um, countries overseas. I'm sorry, what? It sounds to me that the root is over here in, in our non-obligation to help improve the policies of those across the seas that Nike, I mean, maybe there should be some sort of obligation that they follow. And we understand they just it, want to improve it. So we've got a, so we, it's not we, I haven't done this. The, the U.S. government, the European governments have a 60-year track record with the World Bank and various development organizations of trying to change countries in the third world. The record's dismal, uh, whether it's foreign aid or institutional change. Uh, what they've done hasn't worked. Sub-Saharan Africa is poorer today than it was in 1970. It's got, and that's where a lot of these programs have been. And in fact, where the biggest development successes have been, have been places that we relatively leave alone who got their policies right. The ones I talked about, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, actually post-World War II, uh, are a lot of the bigger success ones. I think you end up messing up a country even more when you go in. And ultimately, even if it's like uh, writing a new constitution for them and giving them new forms of government, these things don't stick unless it's supported by the people there. So there's tons of episodes of U.S. exporting a U.S. constitution to Latin America and the result looking nothing like U.S. institutions there. So 
in the end, I'm very pessimistic about what we can do. What we can do on the margin to help, uh, I was here debating immigration a while ago, open up to more immigrants, because that's a form of economic development. It doesn't help a particular piece of land develop, but we don't care about a particular piece of land, we care about human flourishing. So if they come here and work in our institutions and have their wages go up, that's economic development from a human standpoint. Like, no one runs around going like, Antarctica's got no too little GDP, it's penguins, no one cares. Uh, so immigration's one thing that we can help. Uh, not putting trade barriers up with these countries is another thing that would help. So things like CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, when something runs 20,000 pages, it's not a free trade agreement. A free trade agreement would take about a page to write. It goes something like, I agree not to tax or put limitations on your stuff if you do the same to mine. Uh, maybe you need one page about like, regulations so that it's non-discriminatory and health and safety regs. But uh, what CAFTA then has is tons of exceptions. Exceptions for things in particular that Latin American countries would be good at sending to the United States. So there's things about being able to import uh, different types of apparel duty-free if first the yarn or the string that went into it came from the United States and then went there. Uh, things like sugar are just left out entirely because the Fungul family in southern Florida lobbies heavily enough to make sure that the U.S. price of sugar is twice the world market price, so they don't want any Caribbean sugar coming in here and depressing the price so that we could actually have sugared coke and instead we get the crappy high fructose corn syrup. Anyway, this is a long way of saying um, there's a few marginal things that we could do, but in the end it's the institutions there that are really needed and I'm not optimistic about anybody's ability to stick it where they aren't. Um, my question is, I have a few. First of all, you said that um, as, as profits, as our, as our economy became more successful, you said something to the effect that um, you know ch child labor vanished as a result of that, and, uh, which I don't think is true. I think you're, you're totally ignoring um, labor movements as well as um, some, some very significant social movements that basically protested and rose up to, in order to um, create legislation that blocked exploitation of workers. Um, now, on that same token, I agree with you that in, in these um, underdeveloped countries that, that the culpability, a lot of it does need to fall on the governments and the institutions there. Um, but I, my question, so I have two questions, basically is why, just because you're, you're doing business overseas or, or producing overseas, why should you not be held to the same um, moral culpability you're held to in this country over there? And as well, do the workers over there, these, these workers that have it so much better, as you claim, do they have any opportunity for advancement? And, um, or are they just being coerced economically rather than at the point of a gun? Uh, okay, so I don't know what you mean by coerced economically. But if by offering them some, an extra alternative they didn't have before, that's coercion, that would be a weird definition of coercion to me. Uh, the point about the labor movement, though, so there's a paper that was just published a year ago, maybe, in Journal of Labor Research called Bad for the Goose, Bad for the Gander. And it was about U.S. Uh, laws protecting workers in health and safety, child labor and stuff, and traces out their development. A lot of these are just ex post, basically, uh, codifications of something that was already going on because of economic development anyway, where once it's put in, it eliminates the few remaining cases, but the things were getting largely eliminated before it ever came into being. And what that study does is then it takes it and it flips it into these sweatshop countries today and says, at what level of economic development was the United States when they passed this law? And then compare that to the level of development and the growth trends in these countries. And they're saying it's 20, 30 years out before these countries reach the level that the United States put their law in, which means to not have the negative consequences, these countries should get much wealthier before they ever do such a thing. Um, and then there was a middle question in there, I forget. Oh, um, I mean, you can advance to being a factory manager, but these aren't like great advancement jobs, no. I mean, but that's the process of economic development is more jobs come in, 
you compete and leave and go to better jobs. So as your sweatshops are displaced by more options. Um, and, that, and there is great evidence of that happening. Look at what people do in Hong Kong, Taiwan today. They're not still at the sewing machines. Uh, so it does happen, but it takes the process of development. It's not like internal promotions in the sweatshop um, that gets them out of there. I'm just a little bit confused. When you talk about these places and these companies that move in, their footprint is bigger than just giving a few people a better minimum wage. They push out other occupations, they push out farming. The, the deals that are made with the uh, governments that are involved here, these crooked deals sometimes, I mean, prevent, prevent choice. So I don't, I don't understand the difference between what you say is like forced servitude. This is still servitude. And when you say you love sweatshops, do you realize how racist that sounds? Number one. I love them for any race. Number two, if you like sweatshops so much, why don't you go work one? I'll take all of these questions because they're actually quite absurd. Uh, the point is, relative to their alternatives, not relative to the alternatives here. That's not the right comparison. And if I'm being coerced to be here and give a lecture today by someone paying me to come here, it's the same thing. I'm choosing to come here and work. Now, when it comes to these deals with the government, I agree that sometimes companies go in and they get laws that should not be there. So if they go in and they get exclusive franchise to purchase labor, basically get a deal where they can be the only factory in town, that's not good. It limits other options. But if they go in and simply open a factory and other alternatives disappear, it's because people are choosing that alternative as being better than those other ones. This notion of like some sort of idyllic life on the farm is absurd. Farm is poverty. Escaping par poverty involves choosing to leave the farm. And that's what these workers choose to do when these factories open up. No. And a part about the racism, there's no racism in this. I advocate it for white people, yellow people, brown people, all people that don't have better alternatives. Giving somebody an extra alternative isn't racist. It's not exploiting them. It's just giving choices. Okay, I'm being censored here, but I just wanted to say that it seems like to me that these companies that you're talking about completely disregard culture, just like Roscoe and all these other theories. And for you to sit here and say that I'm absurd, this whole presentation has been absurd. I'm sorry. This is just, I don't know how you cannot hear the racism in your words. I don't know how you can't hear it. I don't know what racism is on this issue. I'm talking, I said it was a stage of development in the United States, England, and Germany for white people here, and it advanced them from the farm to the society we have today. It's not about race. Slavery is an abomination and was in the United States, but that wasn't part of the process of development. The South was a backwater being held behind by slavery. Slavery was making us poor on that. It might have helped individual slave owners. Question up here. Does gender contribute to the sweatshops? Did you have research studies for uh, women and men? Or does gender play a huge role in the poverty countries for women are supposed to just stay at home and do the cooking and raising the children while men do the sweatshop working and the farming? Yeah, it's a mix of people and it depends on which, and it depends on which country. Uh, but women quite often take sweatshop jobs, I mean, especially apparel industry ones. And that certainly was the case in the United States when you look. I live in Haverhill, Massachusetts, Lowell and Lawrence, the big textile factories of the 19th century are right next door to me. There it was a lot of women, young women who came to work there. And in fact, in terms of like a sense of freedom, women who were prior oppressed by their parents and on the farm and had very few choices when they moved to the city, it was a better life for them and gave them more economic independence and more independence from their own family who often ruled over them. 
Um, you have a follow-up? Um, I do. Something, I'm just very sad, I guess, uh, I'm majoring in ecological restoration, and um, I'm just really sad to hear, I don't, I couldn't really follow you with the comment about, I don't even remember what the argument or what the answer was to the question, but she said something about it's just the Arctic Circle. If they're just penguins, nobody cares. When you, and then I don't really understand that comment. Um, I don't, I'm not, maybe I'm going into I'm, that too I'm, deeply. I'm not you go too deep. I'm not attacking the penguins. Love the penguins. Right, I understand. But, but I wanted to no understand like the argument about, better, the answer that you were... The answer I was giving is when we're talking about like GDP in a country or economic growth, we don't literally mm -hmm. care about a piece of land having humans on it that have a high standard of living. We care about individual humans having a high standard of living. So if that means they leave that land and migrate to a place like the United States that has better institutions and then they have higher incomes, that's economic development in the same sense as if they had had that happen where they were before. That's all. No, okay. no penguin hating. Yeah. Um, also, on that note, um, I worry about our future. I think that when people talk about economic development, they worry about today and tomorrow, and they don't look at the bigger picture and worry about 20 years from now. And I worry about the, um, of course, you can't go and lecture worldwide or nationally without um, tests and statistics and graphs because that's going to basically point out to everybody facts and nobody wants to go to a lecture unless they have proven facts. But what worries me is that because your lecture is based on nothing but beneficial um, stuff for these other third world countries, I worry about what happens to their land because if everybody if the majority of the people going to your lectures leaves feeling like this is something beneficial for those areas of land, what happens to our um, natural resources when we go into these other countries in the future and bring more sweatshops or more industries and factories and it just really like destroys the land. And then it destroys the tradition in the families of actually doing the farming. Maybe they're actually happy out there breathing fresh air and farming every day and, and raising their children in an open land. And then and then they make money actually having to import those fruits or goods or coffee or whatever it is to America. But if we go in there and destroy that land, we're not going to be able to get that. Yeah, so quick on the, on the land issue. So in the long run, I mean, as countries develop and become wealthier, they tend to protect their environments better. Poorer countries do a very bad job of protecting their environments. So much like these other things, it tends to be a normal good. As you get wealthier, you protect it more. Um, in the short run, I think it's, uh, there should be prohibitions on factories, you know, polluting the water source or doing things like that, because uh, that's not internalizing the cost of their actions. It's spilling it over on other people. They shouldn't be able to do that. That's a problem of local governance that we're not going to solve from here. Uh, so, but the, but uh, I, th I think that's all that you had on that last part. All right, next person. Okay. Um. So I just wanted to know like, what the probability of this would be. I'm not saying creating more laws is the answer, but what would the probability be of those companies that do have sweatshops, of their products when they're sent to America, of getting taxed like 25 cents per product? Obviously, it would go back on the consumer, but I know I could afford 25 extra cents per shoe to be put in like a, a pot to go back to that sweatshop. And per product that that person produces, they'll get an extra quarter or whatever. 
Like, what are the chances of doing that? Something that it wouldn't affect Nike or the people because they'd be still making the same money. No, it w they wouldn't. So it's the same. So taxes aren't borne by who you put the tax on. So that's Econ 101 of tax policy. Taxes depend on relative price sensitivities. So the burden of the tax is going to be split in some way between U.S. consumers and the companies, which changes the equilibrium level of employment for these workers and decreases them and throws them into the worst alternatives. It's I was just thinking, like, servers, we get pay servers get paid a lower wage, and then it's made up with tips. It'd yeah. be like a tip for the shoe. But a tip would be if someone voluntarily dropped some money in a change jar. Like they bought the pro you buy the product and then you have the option of sending this little check to the company that they can use to pay the workers extra. That would be a tip. And that's like not Oh, you could do that, sure. But that's essentially what the ethical branding argument is, though, is doing something like that where some people are willing to pay more for the worker to have a better standard. But when we make it a law or a tax or universal, then it affects not just those people who would be willing to give the tip, but those people who wouldn't want to give the tip, which means that's going to decrease the total number of units purchased and make some of the workers not need those jobs anymore. So the key is keeping it voluntary. Keep it like a tip, voluntary good. Okay, so I had a question um, about when you were talking about the mixing of compensation mm -hmm. um, and how you claim that the workers, in most cases, choose to, instead of having better working conditions, they choose the full, you know, to maximize the compensation in wages. And I was just wondering if you know personally, um, if it's made clear when somebody takes a job, when somebody chooses and goes to the flesh shop and takes a job, if they are aware of the fact that they could either be paid, let's say, um, one dollar a day and 50 cents of that would go to contribute to their working condition or a bathroom break or, you know, something like that, like a working fan yeah. in the shop. So if that's, like, aware, because I find it hard to believe that um, somebody would choose to hold their piss for an entire 10 working hour day to keep that extra 10 cents. Yeah, so... Even when workers are unaware, there's somebody with a big incentive to be aware, and that's the employer. If the employer can figure out a better way to tailor that mix, the employer can make more money or can get away with a smaller total compensation than what they're paying right now. Employers are well aware of this. Um, they're not known for leaving money on the table. So even without individual employee awareness, you'd still have the same thing happening. So I've got to. Why isn't the employer making? Why isn't the employer making that an option? Why isn't the employer? You know, I have an option, like I have a right and an option at my job to either to go to the bathroom. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I'm aware of that. It's not I'm not scared to like, oh can I I don't have to ask permission. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's great. There's lots of things about our jobs in the United States that make them better than sweatshop jobs, including going to the bathroom. But what no one's done for me today who's had objections here, no one's told me a way to make these, that we can mandate policies that would make these sweatshop workers' lives better without throwing some of them into the worst alternatives. Get rid of the corporations altogether. Get rid of the corporations all. So t let's take their limited set of options they have and take away one of those options, and that's going to make a worker better? I don't think so. Yes? I think my question might speak a little bit to what you just proposed. A lot of what you're saying speaks to the, an issue that it makes it seem as though these corporations naturally find these environments and these people naturally find these jobs and that they're offsetting other activities as a matter of simple choice. When in fact, a lot of, a lot of the apparel industry or 
coffee or chocolate or any of these things are a product of economic policies that have been instituted as part of structural adjustment programs. And that didn't involve choice. That involved like mandating particular economic behavior in order to have different kinds of opportunities and access to markets. And so to say that that people, you know, I understand that subsistence farming doesn't doesn't equate to a living wage, but the fact is, is that farming equals food. And when you institute programs that are going to pay wages that don't that don't like, equalize to the ability to purchase food, those people didn't have necessarily a choice when when those jobs started to offset the way that the state was functioning. And it's not just as though the market naturally found these environments. It's been manufactured a lot by people who wanted to find cheaper labor sources. And I think that that has to be a part of the discussion because if these governments wanted to be able to obtain loans, for example, so that they could make these institutional reforms that you say are indicative of the kinds of steps that have to be made in order to improve living conditions, they're prohibited from doing that in large part because all of these loans come with conditionalities. So there has to, the onus of responsibility has to be spread out, not only on the governments, but the people who are instituting these policies and reforms and creating these realities for people who, you know, you argue their lives are better, but they're very hungry. And I think that the food riots in the last five years, you know, are demonstrations of the fact that these wages aren't making people's lives better. Okay, there's a big point of agreement here. Listen. I don't think we should have IMF structural loans. I don't think we should have the World Bank ones. I don't think we should have industrial policy in these countries. These conditions would exist as rampant as they do across the world had it not been facilitated by the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, the details would differ, but what I can tell you this is human beings start off in poverty. If you're going to attain the standard of living we have, you go through working conditions that aren't as good as what we have. So that will exist independent. You have to be able to tax that labor and the property and the profits. None of those profits from the multinational corporations are going back into the producing countries. They're not, it doesn't function the same as it did in the, the United those States. Producing, that labor and property was taxed. Those producing countries are getting the technology and capital that's the key to the economic development. That's the valuable part, not the tax. The tax is just lost revenue. But, uh, institutional reforms are a game of ideological change in a population. You get shifts like that occasionally. Occasionally you get leaders who push it through despite population resistance. But uh, it's not something that's done through just raising tax revenue or something, no. Uh, but bottom line here is, so I oppose industrial policy, state planning of industry, regardless. But with that said, you're going to, if you're going to take a country that's poor and it's going to become rich, it goes through a period where they graduate from farms where people are poor to manufacturing jobs where people are poor. There's no way around it. I don't think that was really a question, but thanks. <laughs> hey, um, thank you. Uh, I'm trying to sort through my own mind, and I, I think I can, can phrase the, the question the proper way. Though, um, it's basically off of economic development and human development, if it's seen as, as the same or equal in this conversation, because it sounds like economic development to you in this seat equals human development. I know you posited that the more economically developed countries, for instance, we'll say America, are, are better off with protecting the environment than, than those of lower economic status. Um, but I don't think, I don't see it making sense in my own mind because I don't feel that we as Americans or America as a whole is, is that good at protecting the environment? Because we are using more nuclear 
um, weapons and those sort of things that, that are destroying our environment. So I'm just asking you to clarify how you explain that the more economically developed the country is, the better off we protect ourselves and our environment. All right. So I think in any case you can find little parts of exceptions, but the vast majority of things that would call human development tend to be correlated pretty heavily with economic development. So if we look at literacy rates, child mortality, life expectancy, uh, basically any of these usual measures of human development, they tend to correlate pretty well with long-term economic growth. Uh, that's what I mean by human development and flourishing, I guess. However you want to define it, they tend to go together. Um, I guess what I get from this presentation, for me, it feels like um, this is basically corporate America's belief, and it makes sense for corporate America, but how do you feel about corporate America having the power to say, look, we'll continue to purchase these goods if you da-da-da-da-da, and also corporate America is saying we will have to give up some profits maybe for these workers to get more wages. Okay, so I don't know what the da 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 da, -da was, but I'm pretty sure it was crucial. Well, just basically, um, we'll continue to buy these goods if you pay your workers more. Or we can buy these goods for more money if you pay them more. I mean, the, the corporations have the money to do it, and they want to kind of pass that on to us consumers. And I think that's the reason why the boycotting thing goes on and consumers feel like, okay, boycott these corporations not so much to hurt these workers, but to kind of show the corporations that, look, you guys are making the big profit here, and you guys do have the money to help these people. Yeah, so the main thing is that economic decisions are made on the margin. So if you legislate just, you have to pay these workers a little bit more, sure, they're not going to fire all of their workers. What you might find, though, is that they stop operating in Bangladesh, where it's really poor, and they move to Honduras, Nicaragua, places where it's more productive. That's going to make. Buying these goods from these countries. Okay, but they're, therefore we're kind of the corporations are still supporting these wages. Yeah, and if they weren't, the wages would be even lower. But that, if they but they could also be higher. But if we legislate, so tell me though how legislating them higher won't result in some workers being fired. In fact, those workers who are the least productive would be the first to be fired. So basically, our poorest of the poor. Why? If we're paying them more money, why? If by paying the workers there more, it creates more value in people's minds here, then this can work. And that's why I talked about ethical branding strategy as a business strategy. That's something that can be and done. That looks but crazy passing that on to the consumers as well. Well, if you pay more for these pair of shoes, I mean Yeah, but this is the key. This is what creates the value for the corporation to do that. Otherwise they won't do it. And when you try to make them do, like someone pointed out in the Q&A, when they mandate a higher minimum wage, all of a sudden corporation starts changing all these other margins. That's what they're always going to do. That's what any rational economic actor would do. Yeah. So as a result, when you push these things through, you end up getting these secondary undesirable consequences. It just seems like we have so much money, and not really us, but the corporations have so much money that it just seems like there's something they can do with that money. So there could be a role for charity but legislating, people respond with decisions on the margin. That means you're going to get these undesirable consequences. So wishing doesn't make it so. So economics puts limits on our utopias. But I feel like they have the power to because they are purchasing these products. If they wanted to do it as an act of charity, like Bill Gates gives away money, he could give away money in this direction. And I know it was from them. But, but if you make it a law, I see. 
No, if you make it a law for Nike to do it, that changes the level of employment Nike would be willing to support. That's the key. If you just say, I'm going to use force and command, you go pay those workers more. If Nike still imports the products, they're going to pay some workers more, but on the margin, they're going to use fewer employees because you just raised the relative price of employees to capital. So you replace some of them with capital, hire fewer workers, unemploy some workers, and for that matter, you say, I'll move to employers, employees who are more productive for that wage, which means moving out of poorer Asian countries towards Latin American countries. If you push it far enough, moving out of Latin American countries and just doing it in the United States, where we have much more skilled labor with a lot more capital. That throws these workers into worse alternatives. That's the key. They respond when you make it a law. A law doesn't mean that the people will do exactly what you say. There's always secondary consequences. Are you saying that because it's up to the employer in that country what they're paying them? So no matter what, we're paying for the goods. And I don't really understand what you're saying about them losing um, employees. If you say, let's make this real simple and extreme. If you say, Nike, you must pay your workers in Honduras $100 to stitch shoes for you, what's Nike going to do? Are they going to keep the same number of Honduran workers as they had before? No. No, because there was some trade-off before of what's the value of machinery versus humans in labor production. We've just changed their relative price and made labor much more expensive, so we'll use less labor. That throws workers into worse alternatives. So it's racist to, uh, to make those changes, right? Racist? Yeah. yeah. They, it's, totally, it's totally racist to take somebody else's job just because we don't. Oh, I understand your angle now. So it would be racist to impose such a policy if you wanted to harm poor people who aren't white in other countries to enrich white people here in the United States. That would be an interesting way to incorporate racism in this. Yeah. I mean, I think that's in large part why the labor unions in the United States are in it. So you began saying that um, that you would be against any type of forced labor, correct? Under the threat of violence, yeah. All right, all right. So if if there was a situation, how common is that? I mean, are there factories that use forced labor in today's market? Yeah. So we let's see. Out of the forty-five sweatshop cases we found here, I think there were maybe two or three total where it seemed like there was a, a version of coercion being used, and it was usually through their local government. And do you think there should be any type of U.S. laws against importing yeah. goods that... Sure. Okay. Yeah. Do don't don't buy products from anybody who uses slave labor, absolutely. And, and how do we know that, you know, the products we buy are, are you know, just sweatshop as opposed to forced labor? Like, uh, how can we as consumers boycott the... So I think this is a role for activists, is to try to identify places that use coerced labor and publicize that and make that known. That's certainly something activists could and should do. So that would be... So I'm not, I think, yes, I think it would be ethical, but more importantly, it wouldn't have adverse consequences for those workers. If you have to threaten someone with violence to get them to work for you, it's obviously not that worker's best alternative. They should be in that other alternative. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to use violence to get them. So in those cases, if we boycott, the jobs disappear, that's a good thing. They have, they have better options that they end up in. When we have an option where they chose to work there and we get rid of that option, that's a bad thing. Thanks. Thank you. I just want to say thanks for coming today. I learned a lot. And uh, I tend to be a really like optimistic person. And everything that you've offered here I thought was very well documented and I really appreciate it. Um, so in right? Thank you. So I mean sure there's so many things we can feel emotional about and argue about and such. But really when it comes down to it, it's actions that speak louder than words. So in my experience in the yoga community yoga community, 
a group of like 13 yoga teachers all across the United States created, I think it was like $250,000 to take 200 children in Cambodia out of these situations and make a school. That was a group of like two dozen people, right? So what are your personal feelings about individuals creating personal change in these places and also microloans and how that can offer opportunity for people to step away from that? Okay. So yeah, I think there's a role for private charity in doing something like the yoga teachers did. And actually, when it comes to like open, so one of the keys for child labor is that they need the wages from those children. So one way to get children out of factories is if you come up with charitable money that pays children to go to school. Uh, so that's something that positive that groups like the yoga teachers could do. Uh, the last part about micro lending, I think micro lending is a useful thing, but we have to be careful about how much we can expect out of it. So micro loans, you go, you give small loans uh, to local entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, someone who has a chicken farm with 10 chickens all of a sudden, now they've got a bigger coop, so they can do more. Typically, these loans are pretty good at getting people who are at like the $1, $2 a day level to the $3, $4 a day level. So it helps you with your worst cases of poverty get a little bit better. But they're micro, and they're micro by nature. Like that one with the chicken coop never turns into Purdue. And the reason they don't turn into Purdue is because they have governments in these countries that as soon as they start becoming a big firm, they get nationalized, they get taxed, they get their profits flated away, they have to deal with the local labor laws, all sorts of other things. So the institutional environment constrains how much micro-lending can do. So micro-lending is a good way to get people credit who don't have access to credit that gets you limited development, but you hit the ceiling. And until you get institutional reform, you can't keep moving beyond. Now, an interesting question is, by getting more people a stake in a private enterprise economic system through micro-lending, would that create an ideological shift to try to change those institutions? Thus far, our evidence is not good in that favor. I mean, Bangladesh is where it's been going along, uh, going, has been the most widespread the longest, and we don't see anything like that happening there, but it's an open question. But at least in the short run, it's something beneficial. Well, I thank you all for uh, 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 energetic discussion.